Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Given we are in the middle of a venture capital downturn, we thought it might be interesting to look back on previous downturns to see what lessons we can learn and what is different this time. Keelan Doyle of Simvan Capital talks through the dot-com bubble and the Great Recession with me and how they compare to now. We did have some technical issues, so apologies if the conversation is broken in a couple of places. If you joined the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe through all good podcast services or following the links in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So I am delighted to welcome back Keelan Doyle, who is CEO and co-founder of Simbin Capital. Welcome back to the podcast, Keelan. Thanks for being back, Brian. So as regular listeners will know, Keelan has been a regular on our year-end panel, but I thought it was high time we got him back for a sort of solo episode. So it's taken a little while to range, but I'm really glad we finally got there. So I'm looking forward to having a good chat with you today, Keelan. Um, so am I, Brian. It's um, it's nice to be here for our midterm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a nice summer rather than winter yeah. uh, chat. Um, so in case anybody has missed you on one of the year-end panels, do you want to give us a quick introduction to yourself and how you became involved in venture capital? Yeah, okay. I suppose the answer to that is by accident. And I'll explain that accident through the show when we get talking about some of the press bubbles and whatever. But Simban's co-founder, Nick Nicolaides and myself founded um, Simban in 2013 as fund manager. But we'd been working together since 2005. Um, We were working a lot, and and, and I know we're we're probably going to discuss this a bit more, um, in listed markets primarily. Um, and, And we sort of, if you look back, as someone said to me recently, Oh, you, I think you made a really good move moving from listed markets to venture capital because kind of the market has gone that way over the period of 20 years or so. And it was really by accident. And it was really to do with the 2008-9 downturn. And listed markets just dried up. And uh, we started doing some uh, corporate advisory work and stuff. And then that just led to us getting full sort of moving in, just founding Simban Capital and starting our first fund, which was an SEIS fund before we founded the EIS fund. And that was in 2014 was our first fund that we invested in. I mean, if we really look back and go back and not call it VC, but call it growth capital, I suppose it was a conscious decision. Both Nick and I made a decision to move away from bulge track and investment banks, where we both worked in technology-related stuff since the early 90s. In Nick's case, very much in an ECM corporate finance world, um, position. He was deeply involved with the autonomy IPO way back when, when yeah. their market cap was just a little over $100 million. I, I vaguely even remember that. <laughs> yeah, on ESDAC. Uh, if you remember that exchange. Oh, yes. <laughs> really? I know. And uh, I was doing more derivative stuff, uh, but a lot of it based on tech. Yeah, we, we, we sort of consciously decided to move into growth capital. But at that time, growth capital, there, it was quite vibrant in, in, in the listed market and very vibrant in the 2000s. And I, that really hasn't come back since then, at least to the extent that it, the dynamism was there. So, yeah, it was kind of by accident, but we were more conscious in getting involved in growth capital some 20 years ago. Okay. And you mentioned Simvan. Uh, do you want to tell us what Simvan has developed into now? Yeah, we're, I, I think our principles are still the same. We're a, a, a much bigger, but we're still a relatively small AUM. We don't have billions uh, under management. We were the first in the EIS market to talk about a fund objective, a target objective of 285 per pound invested. We still, that's an IRR depending on the exits of in the 20s, low 20s, mid 20s, depending. 
no one talked about that back then, as you remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the highest other uh, target was 160 per one pound invested, and most people were uh, asset back to that time. But our life cycle approach of getting involved, which mm-hmm. versus if we're ever lucky enough to get a revolute, we can follow that all the way down, with, you know, by using preemption rights. So it's funny we 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 had been involved in a lot of IPOs with major or dealing. I dealt with a lot of major tech firms like Microsoft, Oracle, and those people, and we went all the way down to SEIS, um, and partially because when we did do IPOs. Um, mid-market IPOs, you would notice with tech firms that a lot of them grew like teenagers, sort of very awkwardly. They were fast growing, but um, you know, you, you tended to have to spend a lot of time ahead of the IPO fixing mm-hmm. things like corporate governance and whatever. And we thought that it would be interesting to get involved in that early stage and 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 grow them. And so, I guess now what's different is we actually have that. I mean, when we first started, people would say, "Well, what's your experience as an EIS fund manager?" And naturally enough, and we'd say, "Well, we have a lot of experience in tech." And then, you know, when the patient capital reviewed, but that that's a hard mountain to climb. <laughs> I think yeah. it's now, it's yeah. now, but it, it was certainly very hard, that, and particularly since the market was quite different. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But it sounds like you've made good progress since then. Yeah, we'd like to think so. So for today's discussion, we, 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 we speak reasonably regularly, and you had this great story from a conference. So I'm going to sort of hand it over to you to tell us okay. the story. <laughs> I've told this story a few times, and it, 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 it always uh, amuses. The BVCA have uh, the, the main lobbying company, for, uh, industry group for venture capital and private equity. They have a two-day tech conference uh, every year, and I was in, on holiday this year, so I missed it. But last year... Uh, it was mid-June in Soho, uh, in London, and the first day was about seed and Series A financings, and then the second day was about sort of Series B and above. I didn't go to the second one, but my colleague Michael was at both, and I asked him, how was the Series B and above, and, you know, for the financings? And, and he said it was like a morgue in there. It was just everyone was so depressed and whatever. And this is about, I'm going to call it six months into the bear market. Because I, I guess we probably safely say it's about 18 months into the tech bear market now. Um, but at that point, six months and, you know, the latter stages, I suppose that more correlated with the listed markets, uh, absolutely hammered. But people kind of hold their head up in the series in the series A. But there's one particular seminar where there's about four or five on the panel and, and an interviewer. And the interviewer at one point turns around and says, uh, has anyone seen a tech downturn before? And Everyone just looked at each other and no, no, this was new. So all, and it was kind of this early stages, right? So it was like, how long does this last? I guess, you know, like, <laughs> candidly. Um, and I, I looked at Michael and I was, it reminded me of what I've been saying for two or three years to my investment committee, but, you know, this market is open. And as, and on some of our podcasts last year and the year before, or particularly the year before, when Neil Cole from UBS and I were talking about the B word, the bubble word, and, yeah. and how, yeah. How, how overvalued the market was. And it was, you know, the chickens were coming home to roost, as it were, six months later. And uh, But it, it, what really struck me was that no one here uh, had seen a bear market before. And, and then the moderator then asked, he said, does anyone remember 2008, 2009? And people said, no, not me. When one guy said, yeah, I was just in high school at that point. And <laughs> it was uh, it was interesting. It was interesting. But uh, it really, you realize that, People haven't just haven't seen the ups and downs, you know, the of the markets. And you know, there's that Malcolm Gladwell f- phrase about "Have you done your ten thousand hours?" And I suppose one of the 
things that experience brings you is by mistake or by ill fate, you in the good, the bad, and the ugly. And people only seen the good for a few years. So I suppose that explains some of the dynamics of the market. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was a good story. We we chatted about this and I thought it might be a good discussion to say you and I, sadly or fortunately, have a bit, little bit of gray hair now. Mm-hmm. We've lived through a couple of downturns and I thought we might be worth chatting through uh, a couple of previous downturns, giving our experiences perhaps, and then seeing what lessons we can draw now in terms of what's the same and what's different. Yeah, that sounds good. So thinking back 20 years, how was the dot-com bubble for you? Well, I was. Uh, I remember very clearly when it really started happening because it happened so quickly and because uh, you know the market was so buoyant, irrational exuberance. Mm-hmm. This is the day of irrational exuberance. If you remember that book, and yes, the, the internet was all was changing the world. And if you think about it, the market was right in general. But where it got wrong was a lot of individual choices, and there was a lot of companies mm-hmm. that floated. And it was so different back then because people were kind of like two years into existence and they'd be IPOing. You you IPO'd a lot earlier. Now you have Uber that you know went through ten rounds of venture funding or whatever, and then before their IPO. And um, there was a lot of excitement. It was heady times. But uh, I remember it. Uh, I was in equity derivatives at Deutsche Bank at that point, and we were launching in a tech product just as it started falling, and we had to pull the product. I know Nick had a big – he was at Lehman Brothers. They had a big IPO they had to pull. And that was the story of that time, wasn't it? The, uh-huh. the IPO was just collapsed completely. didn't come back for a long time, certainly in tech anyway, because then natural resources kicked in in the early 2000s, and so that was where the IPO was. But it really did – but it, it wasn't as noticeable then in many ways, and we probably get to this in a compare and contrast, because the VC tech market here was nothing at that point, very little action. Uh, the A market was probably where the action was in terms of venture capital at that point. What, what's very different from that uh, crash, uh, and it's I think it was historically it became obvious that there was no recession. It wasn't like t- 10 years later and recently, um, or even recently, it was, you know, that was a weird recession, but... You know, a lot of people at the time thought that meant a recession, but really it, it wasn't a credit. It was a, uh-huh. the equity. So there was a wealth effect for some people, but it wasn't like what happened later when it, you know, the trip to banks into bankruptcy or anything like that. It very different. It was sort of took the froth off. But, you know, some good companies came, started emerging from yeah. those days. But a lot was, you know, a lot of it was eliminated. Yeah, it was really weird. Uh, as you say, it led to a downturn. And in the US, I think, I think the US had a recession. But in some sense, equity kind of did its job in terms of it was the equity, the equity shareholders benefit in the sort of 99, 2000 run up. Nine, you know, I think you've got to go back probably 97 probably was when it, when it really no. sort of took off, started no. to take off. No. Uh, but, th- but, they, but, you know, in the downturn, the sort of 2002, 2002, uh, I was doing some, checking some statistics and NASDAQ fell 78%. Yeah. And it was all, but it was all focused on what was TMT, technology, yeah. media, and telecoms. Yeah. And, and, and the wider economy. And, the, and the, afterwards, there were graphs of these stocks that just continued to chug up in sort of 5%, 10% a year. Yeah. So sort of these solid industrials that just had, had, had just sort of kind of bypassed this whole bubble that happened in a very specific area. Uh, and probably, in some sense, sucked too too much capital, but left us with a legacy of, you know, Amazon and Apple, maybe not so much Apple, but Amazon certainly came out of that period, and Google eventually. 
and 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 dark fiber in the ground, which was the, <laughs> the, the other famous thing at the time. Yeah, and you remember there was in the late '90s there was a lot of pressure on value managers as opposed to growth managers, and uh, some I think lost their jobs ahead of the the and you know subsequently might have been proven right, but you know yeah. you, you, it wasn't a time for value stocks in the in the run up. Yeah. I think I think the classic bear signal. There was a very high-profile economist at, I think it was Schroeder's, but uh, Tony somebody, and he lost his job basically like a week or two weeks before the market peak, yeah. and he was all bearish all the way up, saying, "This is too much. This is too much." Yeah. And as someone who I worked as quote fund manager, and I was probably cl- closest to the internal bear, in in some sense. But yeah, this poor guy lost a job literally, you know just before the, the the peak and he was proven right i remember i think he was phillips and drew i, I seem to remember was it yeah I know who you're talking about like forget his name <laughs> it's quite a while ago now isn't it <laughs> yes <laughs> our memory's not as good to be but yeah I, th- I think one of the interesting things that you mentioned there is is how much of this was a quoted market phenomenon and and i think my impression is that some of the stuff, a lot, as you say, a lot of stuff that happens in private markets now then happened in the public markets. Mm. Um, I was thinking of an IPO that meeting that I attended where it was it was actually brothers, might have been even been twins, very bright guys that had invented some networking sort of uh, widget or whatever. Mm. And the whole idea was that there's these two guys both with PhDs, technically probably brilliant, were going to set up a company, run a company, and they were going to buy things with the currency they got from this. And I remember thinking, you have no kind of business experience. You've got a product. You've hardly got any sales. It's kind of, you know, now I I would recognize that that was probably a very appropriate venture capital investment. But um, at the time, it was something that was coming for an IPO. Yeah, I know. Just totally unsuited to, to that environment. I think IPOs got away like that, that we're just not, they shouldn't have been IPO in retrospect. You're, you're right. I wouldn't, that just wouldn't happen now. Yeah. Well, I, I, as you say, I, th- I think over the last 20 years, and you've, you've, you, you have almost been part of this trend where money has moved from public markets to private markets. And the joke about you know, people staying private for longer. Um, well, it's not a joke, but it's, it's a truism, actually. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, it's tra- changed all out of recognition from from those days. You thought there was a real catastrophe at the time, but it looked it looked like I'm sort of just blowing off some steam compared to what happened a decade later. Well, yes, it's, it, well, this is it. It's kind of I uh, I remember there was the Asian crisis in '97, and then you had the ruble crisis in '98, yeah. and then then you had. Which, which it was kind of flashes in the pans. They just didn't last very long. No, long-term capital when they failed uh, and the market seized up, but it was over pretty soon. The equity market never seized up for long-term capital management. That was a debt market thing. And I was I, as an equity fund manager, I was like, oh, there's this thing called long-term capital management out there. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But yeah, as, as you say, 2007, 2009, that was a completely different kettle of fish. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, it started for us, uh, Nick and I were working together at that time, and I remember very clearly we were talking to a group that uh, was a little bit like the, what we know today, the UK version of IP Group. Instead, they were looking at spinning technology out of an American university. They they had talked to a number of uh, um, brokers and corporate finance houses in the A market about doing an IPO. But whilst they went back to the States, and there's some diligence going on with some people, they 
Northern Rock happened. I believe that was August 2007, serves right. And the IPO market froze from there, and it didn't really, uh, didn't really come back for over. I mean, it really after Lehman Brothers, it, but that was still more than a year away. Then it was dead. It was it certainly slowed down quite a lot. As we know, the IPO market always is temperamental, isn't it? It's uh, even on a good day. Yeah, even on a good day. So that was kind of like, uh, oh, okay. And, you know, it kind of went from there. But uh, we, I remember internally, we were asked to talk, you know, uh, the CEO of the group that Nick and I were for, asked for our opinions and also for one or two people who are more traders. And I wrote something terribly bearish, but I, of what was about to unfold, but I never was able to recover that when I left that firm. I could never find that email, which mm-hmm. I would have had because it was sort of, slightly prescient but it's uh i guess the party was over right and then it, you just saw it business just became a lot harder and then of course we had uh i guess for us uh lehman brothers happened and we had an ipo a week after mm-hmm. we, deloitte's was the nomad and we were the broker and we um we got it away but only because it had been placed well in advance of lehman brothers because the, the London Stock Exchange was a very empty place. That I think we were the first IPO for for a while, but mm-hmm. in the thousands, often there were four IPOs a day. You know, it was a it, it, the market just changed on a dime. And then, of course, this was a very different recession from before, where the bank solvencies were. Mm-hmm. Under, I remember a friend of mine was very senior in Treasury at Close Brothers at that time, and I'd say, "How?" I meet him for a drink after work. How are you doing? And he'd go, "Horrible." Barclays won't lend to Lloyd's overnight. Well, you know. <laughs> When you have that kind of situation, yeah. just routine banking can't of, can happen because no one trusts each other's balance sheets at the end of the day. Um, and another friend of mine who was in risk at Merrill Lynch was just so gloomy, I couldn't believe it, almost like our entire assets were worthless. And he uh-huh. was, they had a lot of MBS and, you know, quite a derivative exposure. But uh, yeah, it came and, and it lasted. And I think from a VC point of view, uh, and that's really what led us into our switch, our kind of accident. Well, at the top of the program, I was saying our accidental switch. Yeah. We started moving more into, well, first of all, sort of distress situations. And actually, that's where the word Simban comes from. Um, around that time, oil had spiked up to about $140 or whatever it was. Uh-huh. And all yeah. of those budget airlines were, were, were failing. And we had a group that we worked for. And... We uh, we came up. They wanted to do a. They wanted a basically a distressed situation. A, a lot of these sort of um, Thomas Cook type organizations, and they they had a lot of them were in trouble. Not just in Europe, but this was more of a Europe focus. And uh, they wanted to do a prospectus. They wanted to launch a retail. They had all this money lined up, hundreds of millions. Uh, but you can't do a prospectus that quickly. It takes months. And we came mm-hmm. up with something that's roughly a conversion bond. But it allows us to get around the prospectus rules, and we designed this. We made some pretty good money, and shortly thereafter, we went out and found a Simban, and we we, we called it something because we were going to trademark it, and it was basically because we were in a recession. We thought those kind of turnarounds were sort of where the action was, and um, Simban was, you know, something that happens that triggers an event, because basically what happened here is a bond that didn't convert into an equity until they made one of the M and A purchases happen. Exactly. That was the event that triggered it into switching into a different instrument. So we 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 didn't want to use our names when we started Simban, and we just sort of picked that. Oh, okay, with happy associations with that, but not happy associations with the economic climate at the time because it was very tough. Venture funding yeah. was non-existent for a few years, or yeah. or IPOs for that matter. Yeah. Well, I, I say 
Yeah, I mean, there's a mass shortage of capital, despite the fact governments introduced huge amount of QE. But yeah. capital, particularly risk capital, kind of dried up because I think my interpretation was that people had got burnt. A lot of this banking capital or, or debt capital had been destroyed. It'd mm-hmm. been destroyed because people didn't understand what was going on. Yeah. And when people don't understand what's going on, they get suspicious of kind of everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they're very cautious on, on what, on what on, you know, and capital preservation becomes the order of the day. So in a way, it's hardly surprising that venture capital kind of got d- demolished in the backlash. When these things happen, I suppose they're like many tragedies or major tragedies in many respects. Is a lot of everything was destroyed at that time, the Great Recession. Yeah. Realize also how, how people don't have a very good understanding. You kind of alluded to just a second ago, what's going on? And even sophisticated people. I remember, do you remember that... The well, following following Lehman Brothers, which I think we can all agree was a mistake. Well, who does the fire turn on next? Merrill Lynch, and who was going to be after that? Morgan Stanley, who's going to be after that? Uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, you know. And when you have a contagion, you have a contagion, and people you're not operating logically anymore. And um, I remember going out with some VCs, and he thought that was a totally ridiculous thesis that Merrill's who went into the hands of Bank of America, and I think that's when. Okay, stop. This has to end now. Put the red to this, and he didn't accept that. He didn't accept that Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs had any hope of going down. And to me, I thought, you know, you're a VC, you should, you, but have no understanding of, if you like, my macro perspective on this. And when you think about that, what is a macro perspective? It's sort of like putting things in context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly at the time, I was someone who technically I was out of the market at the time. I, I wasn't actually working. I was between between draws. And in my, when I was a quoted fund manager, I spent a lot of time looking at financials and banks. So I, I thought I understood what, a little bit what was going on. I remember having lots of conversations with friends at the time, and they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's just let you, 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 they, they, they're cursing all these bankers to high heaven. And, yeah. I, and in a way, they, you know, they, they should be at the same time. It's kind of, well, actually, you know, we maybe shouldn't bail out the bankers, but we should bail out the banks. Mm. And, and that kind of uh, subtlety of distinction kind of got lost a little bit in that, you know, they mm. were too interconnected to fail at times. And, you know, I mean, you know, whether we, you know, to my mind, the mistake was Bear turns and they should let Bear turns go under. And that would have been, with hindsight, I think that mm. was probably early enough to be the shot across the bow to everybody go, whoa, we've got to, you know, we, we've, got, we've got to sort ourselves out. But yeah. maybe I'm wrong with that. Maybe that, that might have t- tipped over a pile of dominoes in itself. Yeah, well, that was very early on. That was very early on. I mean, that, if I remember right, was that before Northern Rock? Because Northern Rock came out of the blue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we hadn't seen a bank failure in something like 140 years in the UK. Yeah. But, you know, people were still a little bit, oh, okay, well, that's, these things happen. You know, it wasn't, it turned into something I think uh, no one anticipated it was going to be quite as, you know, value dis. Yeah. That value destruction because so many things. I mean, UK GDP didn't hit its pre-GDP pre-crisis for years. VC funding was dead for years. Um, yeah. So was so was I think the IPO market. When the, there was one a big tech one called Splunk on Nasdaq. I think that was 2012. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If it serves, maybe it was 2011. But uh, you know, for a good few years there, and you know, there was no lack of good companies coming through, but there's a lack of capital. Yeah, and certainly I think the recovery from the Great Recession was slower than the, than the t- dot com, I think, in my because the dot com, yeah, 
you know, I, I, as you say, a lot of it happened in the quote markets. And the quote markets took a long time to come back. But the private capital markets, I think, had started to recover. And maybe that was the start of the drift towards private capital with the benefit of hindsight. Whereas yeah. in, after the Great Recession, I, I, I think the venture capital market took longer to recover. I mean, you know, I don't yeah. know what your perspective is. Yeah, it did. It did. But when it recovered, it took the action away from the public markets. I think there was another that also had to do with legislation, I think, as well. It made, you know, I mean, for instance, the sort of thing, actually, sort of thing. Or, or even just um, the, the capital requirements of banks, which were needed to make them safer. But for instance, in the AIM market, which was a home for, uh, I mean, a lot of the VC, maybe the more advanced VC market is maybe once upon a time would have been on AIM in 2005. But, you know, there used to be a lot of market makers on AIM back then, and there was a lot of houses doing research. Uh-huh. And you can aim stock and have three or four research reports on you and you don't get any of that anymore. And that's a combination, I think, of, you know, banks don't have, you know, the, 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 the capital is too expensive to, you know, just can't, they can't make money off it. I think I would add the point to, as well as legislation, pr- the growth of private equity, because private equity, the sort of the non-venture capital part of private equity w- did really well in you know the f- the first decade of 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 this century in particular so that period between the the tech bubble and the the sort of great recession because you had all these companies that were in the tech bubble unappreciated mm-hmm. and and cheap so pro- they're ripe for sort of some people like private to come and take them out so private equity had a really great decade which perhaps they never or certainly as an industry they probably never quite reached since but at the same time it persuaded people that there was value in investing privately and maybe less efficient markets. And some of that has spilled down to venture capital as well. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. So if we sort of fast forward a quick sort of 10, 12 years, uh, so from from the Great Recession to 2009, it took a while to recover. So by the the middle of last decade, tech was sort of, and and venture capital doing pretty well. And then what's happened in the last sort of 18 months or couple of years i suppose from when we recovered in 2011 12 whenever and it started coming back venture markets i'm, I'm, I'm thinking of in particular it turned into quite an, a, a robust few years right and we had a quite a and then we ran into covid and i remember everyone thinking is this you know is this the end and it wasn't which is kind of a minor miracle itself because i suppose if you look back on a macro point of view we had uh, no recession or a small recession in 2000. We had a severe one, and it was worse since the 1930s in 2008. Yeah. And then we had a sharp, very severe, but bounced back one um, in, in recently in the 2020s. Um, but but it was very different yeah. also in that um, in that uh, the tech market. I I guess you know was came off. Uh, not because of COVID, it was did quite well during COVID. Really started coming off about eighteen months ago, and I think there's all sorts of reasons for it coming off. Not least that the value when you're in a bubble, you just never know what's going to pop the bubble. You would have thought it was COVID, but it, it wasn't. But I think what really, if I yeah. was to give one main reason, it was rising interest rates and the cascade that that happened because we'd had some long of. QE and but some you know, zero rates that were getting too uh-huh. comfortable, perhaps with the actual risk they were bearing. And um, then it goes from that scenario where you're 
you're paying too much for the, you know, the risk reward is out of whack. And it goes from that to, you know, it's a famine very quickly, doesn't it? And Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think with hindsight, the sort of the QE that we got in 2020 kind of caused the last hurrah, if you like, or, 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 or the final surge in that bubble in, in 2021 where valuations went from, you know, and certainly if I think back to the, the you know, the three, year-end podcast that we've done all three times we've discussed valuation mm-hmm. and the first two it's like so the first one the end of 2020 was like well valuations are pretty high and we're a bit worried and then 2021 they're still really high and we're even more worried and then last year we were sort of okay right so finally we, we, we you see we see that puncturing but um i think the nature of markets a little bit is they overshoot so they sometimes overshoot to the upside they also overshoot to the downside. Uh, I think particularly have something where, you know, in venture capital where it's not, there's no hint of it really being an efficient market. It's not, and certainly efficient pricing it is re- really hard to get. So just as markets went up too much, perhaps, so you're quite right, Brian, they, they do overshoot. And we're probably well into that territory. I mean, you see a lot of, um, well, you see, you see a lot of bankruptcies. I mean, that's going to happen and continue, I think. I mean, we saw... A darling of the purple bricks was a darling of the tech world at one point. Mm-hmm. It sold for one pound. We see Kazoo down ninety-seven percent. That that was a darling of the SPAC world at one point, and now these are either worthless or, or near to, or, or or just radically reduced in terms of what the the market regards their value at. So that's the story. You know, in many ways, there are things that are different about all the three cycles we talked about. But at the end of the day, there's similarities. I suppose a bubble is a bubble. All of them. I think at the time, most of them, I, I, I remember feeling that we were in a bubble. I know this most recent one, we talked about it. In fact, I remember Neil sort of in a Warren Buffett moment talking about, we'll see who the good fund managers are after, after you know, a lot of people make good money in recent years. Let's see who makes money and who overpaid, basically, in the, in the market. Yeah. Because it's difficult. You know, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of VCs, I think one thing that's common in all these cycles, what's your first... You, your first instinct is money's harder to raise, and you look after your your the stars in your portfolio. That's your first priority. You probably make some decision, but one thing you definitely do is you you're not as open to new opportunities because you're concentrating on making sure you know your mm-hmm. portfolio gets through and that 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 there's enough capital there. Whereas it was taken for granted there for a few years, and that that's not I'm sure that's happening right now. You know, it's it, there'll probably be more bankruptcies. There's a bit of a lag effect there. There'll be a lot of companies that raise. I mean, Brian, we would see companies. I think I've told you this in the past. Right, they come to us, and we were people would give them valuations four or five times what we were willing to give them. You know, just not slightly yeah. higher, but just and well, order yeah. And it's actually interesting. It's. Um, you do get an une- unevenness in markets like this, you know. Well, this is the point I wanted to pick up on because it seems to me, and, and maybe this is the illusion of memory a little bit, my take on the current market is that the downturn has been incredibly uneven. I mean, if you think back to 2007, 2008, everything was trashed. It's like the whole market was just, every sector, every sort of segment all went down together. In the dot-com, it was slightly different, but tech as a whole, the bubble could burst as a whole. NASDAQ crashed, and everything on NASDAQ went down with it. You know, there were some things, industrials or maybe debt, not quite so much. But basically, the, the, the tech 
crash was a, a crash of everything. This downturn is incredibly uneven, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think I, I think uh, the, the two or three points about that. One is a sector agreement, is a sector differentiation, but the other is more of a maturity. The Certainly the later stage VC has been absolutely hammered and uh-huh. a lot of more mature has been hammered. But for some strange reason, and I suspect maybe it's just a classic case of too much cash, we find in very early stage, i.e. SCI as part of the market, has been very buoyant. I think there's a lot, there's just way too much money chasing SCIS investments, but they're very buoyant. And there are a lot of people paying way too much for an SCIS investment, which is a real shame because their next round will probably be a down round. But then there's also a sector difference. And and I, I, I just want to cite two that I see in unevenness. One is is digital assets, and the other is insure tech. Digital assets, I was recently in Austin, Texas, at a big convention called Consensus, which is uh-huh. all about Web3, blockchain, and crypto. And, you know, tremendous damage done, um, and particularly for crypto, uh, per se, less so for sort of more real-world um, blockchain, if you like. Although anyone who's doing cryptocurrencies got hammered, on the other hand, and one of the reasons I was there is digital asset custody is a big area where the valuations are at least as frothy as we used to see across the market. Uh-huh. And I think the reason for that is because banks know, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a PwC study that talks about um, the tokenization becoming like 400 times bigger when it is now. Uh-huh. I it moves into major asset groups like fixed income equity, asset management. And to do that, you need to have proper custodian uh, security and to be able to trade at speed. Um, and um, Or you can't have an institutional market. So you do see a differentiation there. On one hand, a crypto nuclear winter. On the other hand, the building blocks of tokenization revolution, if you want to call it uh-huh. that, is, is holding up in valuations. Similarly, in InsureTech, the darling of the year of COVID uh, IPO and NASDAQ was a group called Lemonade. You might have heard of Lemonade. They were, I have heard the name. Um, they they IPO'd at $27, $29. They went up briefly to almost $200, and they're down far below their IPO price. They're basically using uh, you know, an AI play that's uh-huh. using tech to try to, I guess, sort of um, – replace or 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 um in, in in whole or in part traditional carriers uh-huh. in the insurance world they're they're hammered they're not doing so well they're um but companies like platforms that are providing services to the insurance industry a lot of those are holding up and doing quite well so you've seen a differentiation it's not random or at least that's the way it's looking in certain sectors yeah yeah, and, and, and I think the capital availability thing is quite intriguing because if you look on paper, the famous dry powder, there is still a buffer of dry powder. We've seen a huge amount of fundraisers over the last sort of couple of years. A lot of that money is still sitting uninvested in theory. Now, whether when GPs ring up their LPs and say, hey, can we get that money, they can get it, is open to question. But in theory, there is capital out there to invest uh, for the right opportunity. I think there is an SCIS level, although I'm not sure how much. I think there's there's a lot of capital looking at that area. Mm-hmm. I think I've heard, I forget where now, I saw something maybe on LinkedIn looking at GP drawdowns and it's uh, the graph was basically showing GP drawdowns sort of 2008, you know, levels. Mm-hmm. So that, that doesn't look too promising. And 
I know speaking to uh, one of the main custodians in the EIS VCT market just last night, he was saying the only people, the only people who are raising more money than say a year, a year and a half ago of the funds in tax efficient are the really small new ones that are uh -huh. probably pretty uncorrelated. But everybody else is either just hanging in there or quite a bit below what they were raising. Yeah. So uh, it, it's. I don't think it's a. It's, it doesn't feel like a total disaster. Mm -hmm. In some ways, it does, because I remember. I remember 2010 that era. That was really, really tough. It doesn't feel quite as bad as that. There is more activity, but it's definitely a bear market. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and the other area you touched on is AI, and maybe for justifiable reasons, well, understandable reasons, we seem to be in an AI bubble just now. Well, I, where I was in some bubble. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that, that goes back to the evenness. I mean, you, you know, it, you had things that are cratered and things are struggling. And we've got one sector of the market that's in a bubble. Well, do you remember when, when we, we talked about the, the early 2000s? What happened then? We went into two bubbles. We bubble surfed, right? We got mm -hmm. off the tech bubble and we jumped on the, the commodity bubble. Mm -hmm. um, now, that was very China-related. And we also bubbed up, uh, jumped on the credit derivative bubble. Mm -hmm. I mean, when 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 the market was going to hell in a handbasket in, in tech, those credit derivative people were having a field day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, <laughs> maybe we, we like to bubble surf. Um, uh, AI, I mean, the thing about AI has been around for, for, for ages, as you know. It just all of a sudden has come into everyone's consciousness in about the last six months, hasn't it? Um, AI taking over the world or, you know, people writing an essay on AI or just from whatever, you know, all these... Next week, we'll be recording a podcast episode on it, so... <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, um, I would say almost every one of my companies uses AI in some shape or form, and often very intensively. I mean, I'd have to think hard to think of one who doesn't, who couldn't in some way describe themselves as using artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh -huh. uh, it, there's a lot of... I don't know, nonsense talked about AI, isn't there? But uh, I, I'm just surprised it's just become really um, in the public eye now. Well, chat GPT, and someone said, so I, I had an interesting comment recently, which is that it's not so much the strength of the, the of developments in ML per, or machine learning per se, it's the chat GP interface has suddenly brought something that... People are used to the chat interface, and 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 then it's a form that people can sort of relate to and use um, very easily, rather than actually. Well, the AI is there, but you need a sort of degree in computer science or a PhD in computer science to actually be able to implement it. Now, anyone feels they can. I mean, you know, it's a bit like the the stuff that's still manifest in is business to business, really. Mm -hmm. You know, we're B two B enterprise SaaS uh, and tech, usually involving AI. People, when they think of technology, your average person in the street, they think of consumer tech or, I don't know, social media. Or they don't think of business to business, do they? That, that's not, that they kind of operate in the background. And maybe there's maybe there's a bit of that going on, that it's now in people, it's in readily consumable form. And so certainly that makes a difference. I'd, I'd like to come back to sort of the, the, the sort of pricing and, you know, sort of how, how you think different managers are acting because... It's clearly, and, and and it's not just yourself who observed, there are some managers or some investors out there still paying pre-bubble pre prices. And I don't know whether these are institutional or individuals or, or what, but there are some people who have not 
come down with the downturn. And I'm not sure, clearly without knowing who they are, we can't understand their motivations, but how do you think different people are reacting to what's going on? Well, I think a lot are going to the classic look at your portfolio, particularly with capital scarcity. So GPs not able to draw down from their LPs or maybe EIS managers, the panel's not giving them as much money as they did last year. Uh And you look, I mean, certainly, I mean, it depends on what type of manager you are. We're, We're a manager like I said at the offset, like the life cycle, we start with SEIS. We usually give numerous rounds of EIS. We don't like to give people a bunch of money and just, hey, let's talk uh-huh. to you in a year's time. I know there are people who favor that approach. Uh-huh. I mean, a lot of people's approach is we're going to have one winner. Yeah, that's an approach. I mean, I, there are SEIS funds that do that. We're going to, we, we, we only take on four or five a year, but we, they still have, um, I mean, we have very low failure in EIS, but we have quite high failure in SEIS. It's the nature of SEIS. Uh, we spent a lot of time uh, doing the, the, on them, but I know there are other people, and maybe it's, maybe it's a better philosophy, invest in 50 a year, and, you know, five will work, and they'll work so well that you don't really mind if the others go to the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I think it depends on what sort of manager you are. There's definitely managers that I know who do aren't, really involved i mean we're we're pretty hands-on um mm-hmm. so we we look at that as we we actually had a case in SAS last year my salespeople didn't like it too much but we were talking about giving money investor money back because it's just like impossible to find anything properly priced and i just said listen you're going to lose money on this eventually it might take two or three years to see that you're you're losing money but don't feel comfortable intentionally knowing you're going to lose money on an investment mm-hmm. the investment goes wrong with you You've done your diligence and you, you know we're all taking risk here and we don't know how it's going to turn out but if it doesn't turn out you want it to be for the right reasons you know like the two partners go to war or there's no demand for the product or something like that uh not that you always knew it was overvalued you know i think i think um there are going to be people they're just not going to find funding and when you get down rounds they don't they're not 10 percent down rounds right when someone when you're going down to down round territory they're, they're severe down rounds so mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well, certainly, if you look at, as you say, later stage kind of, I mean, B2B SaaS is something where you can easily, perhaps the one area where you can get reasonable metrics on, and mm. valuations are a half of what they were. So even if you've got a company that's made 10% progress or 20% progress in a year, its valuation is going to be 30%, 40% down on what it was a year before if they're, if they're raising money. Now that's psychologically hard. Uh, I mean, I we have a, a company that had an offer that fell away about a, a year and a half ago for fifty million, and it, since that time, sales are up three hundred percent. And I don't think we'd get the fifty million price tag, even though sales are up that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or not right now. Maybe maybe a year from now or two years mm-hmm. from now. But you know, there's definitely. I'd say most of the market has corrected. And it's, where do we go from here? I, we have a typical bear market. I think people focus on their their jewels, as it were, and make sure with limited resources going t- t- towards that, it's it's going to be harder for, except for this current thing that's going on with SES, that's going to fail eventually. You can't buck the trend. You can't have one part of the market bucking the trend forever. Mm-hmm. So I can't, I, against you, that money runs out. Um, reminds me of Margaret Thatcher saying the problem with socialism is that eventually you run out of being able to spend other people's money. Uh, but you could apply this to capitalism in this case. 
Yeah. So, so is your perspective on, you know, we're kind of in it, you know, I think everybody wants to call a bottom somewhere. I don't hear people calling a bottom now, which suggests we've got further to go. You know, you say we're in the downturn yeah. rather than, you know, we're, no one's no one's t- talking about coming out of it yet, or even hints of coming out of it, which suggests that we've got further to get further down to go in valuations. And I think a lot of people are going to close close their doors this year. I mean, quite remarkable what happened to Purple Bricks, right? Selling for a pound. I mean, they were uh-huh. quite a they were a unicorn, weren't they? They for them, which seemed to be sort of real. You know, some unicorns don't seem too real. Mm-hmm. And then they're getting hit. You could just wonder what happens to some of these companies because people like me. I mean, I guess it's just keep your, just go through. Some, I mean, maybe that's the, the 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 value of experience is mm-hmm. we didn't get for like what Neil Cole was saying. Uh, 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 let's see who overpaid in the in the go go years. Uh-huh. You know, we we don't think we overpaid, and we 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 walked away from more deals than we ever have. So we were very conscious of that whether we get rewarded for that, let's see. But uh, there are definitely people who are overpaid who just, where's the follow-on funding going to come? It's hard to see. Yeah. Or it's going to be quite significant down round and that sometimes people aren't willing to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I hear noises, again, anecdotally about people almost bottom fishing. They're out there giving, making offers that are kind of ridiculously low on the basis of, well, if they get accepted, yeah. we've got a bargain. And I never yeah. thought of venture capital somewhere where you could be a value investor, but I, there are some people who might be able to get away with that just now. There, there, there is a bit of that going on. Um, but um, there's also a classic sign of seeing convertibles. Mm-hmm. You know, when you don't want to price a deal because you know the price is going to be down. Yeah. Um, and, and, and we had a couple of people from PwC on recently who were highlighting the, the use of convertibles to vote, to mask um, yeah, or, or ma- ma- mask what might have been a down round otherwise. Yeah, but you can't mask it forever. And also, if we have a scenario where rates are going to go higher than we're all thinking, inflation is going to get tougher. And yeah, um, I, I, I'm not convinced we're at the end, but there's value at least now. You know, you don't, it's a bit like investing in companies. You know, one of the reasons I think we don't have a very high failure rate in EIS is because we do c- continually support companies if they can justify that. Uh-huh. I'll give you an example. We have a company that raised, I guess we probably invested over the years three and a half million, and we had a period where we hadn't invested in them. And then COVID, they were badly hit by COVID because they basically provide software using AI, uh-huh. um, and machine learning, but that um, helps people hire candidates. And they have big, like, uh, intercontinental Jamal groups as one of their big clients. So uh-huh. what happened in COVID? Not too many people are staying in hotels. So they didn't get, they weren't losing clients, but the usage of their was down two thirds. Uh-huh. Um, so it was quite, but there was something, in fact, they're, they have a California equivalent that didn't make it through COVID, and they had 120 million in venture capital poured in, and we were beating them to contracts. And it shows two things: one, capital efficiency, uh-huh. and you know the idea that people just throw money. I, I think there's a lot of money that gets wasted in venture capital, and I think maybe the Americans are are, are worse than this, this, and others. I think their model is changing. They used to be very comfortable with 90% of their portfolio going bust, and that's nice if you get the Instagram here or the Facebook there, but if you don't. You don't have very good returns. Yeah. And yet I still hear from stateside people that the valuations are too high there. 
Although the ones I met in Austin were, well, maybe because they were particularly, a lot of them were in the crypto world, which is, of of all the parts, uniformly felt the uh, the, the downturn. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we have more bankruptcies, we have more, you know, it's, it's not going to be too easy to raise money mm-hmm. uh, the next four months. But I, I think the worst of it is out of the way. I think there's now value. Okay. Well, that's, that's a positive sign. I, th- I think my concern comes back to a point I was making earlier about markets tend to overshoot on the upside and they d- do overshoot on the downside. Now, the unevenness makes me wonder where we are in, in that, you know, we, we haven't reached an exhaustion. Mm. Um, and to get that exhaustion, does that mean, the, you know, if, if more sort of air comes out of the AI bubble or, or, or these sort of areas, does that mean air comes out of the market as a whole and, and segments of the market actually not just become good value but positively cheap um, and we get some sort of overshooting? You mean where there's just bargain, like the yeah. value in, invest in, debated what we're getting towards there, where there is good value. There's uh-huh. certainly some desperation plays where people can't access, and you know, like that one I was telling you about, it's um, California group, they got forced into a forced merger, presumably a significant down round. There's been quite a few of those uh-huh. where, where it's more M&A than... Uh, and I've, I I saw an insurance one recently where someone was hoovering up brokers and MGAs, maybe you know cheaply. I think um, rather than rather than investing in them, sort of taking them over. Yeah, that could see that continuing. Yeah. So at the risk of asking the, an impossible question, because uh, I like impossible questions, having seen the way that recovery took place in dot com and after the Great Recession. How would you see the recovery after this downturn looking? Well, you know that the phrase about history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Yeah. Um, I think well, there will be certain things that are similar, like people sticking to their core portfolio managers, focusing on their winners, mm-hmm. new entrants having a harder time, just the capital scarcity in general. I think that that'll mm-hmm. that characterizes. But but on the other hand, there could be some things that break out quite quickly. I mean. We're not seeing, you know, our we have this company called Custodian. It's a digital asset custodian. That sector is still hot. Uh-huh. There are still pockets that are pretty, looking pretty, you know, not necessarily the valuations are holding up completely, but they're they're not going through a nuclear winter. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I I don't know. I I don't. It's really hard to say how this is. I think part of this depends on a macro view. If you take the view as some do that. We're we're really not got a control of inflation, and we're gonna have we're, we're you know rates are going up even more. So it's so seventy stagflation type scenario. Maybe maybe you know, I mean, it does seem like we were all counting on you know the rates starting to come down, and particularly in the U.S. I mean, we seem to get worse and worse news in the U.K. on that front. Mm-hmm. It can't mean that business is going to be easy if rates are continuing going up from here. But then, you know, in many ways, we would always say about venture capital, it's loosely correlated to major asset, you know, rates going up would impact major markets uh, more so. But that was, we've come from an environment of negative rates or negative real rates anyway, Mm -hmm. zero interest rates. That that, that was very unusual in the history of of whatever economic history, very, um, very unusual. So I don't know. I think that's probably not a very decisive answer to your question. <laughs> well, maybe maybe it's it's impossible to decide. I mean, as you say, we've come out 
of a period that has been exceptional by almost any historical standard. We've had yeah. 15 years of nil interest rates. Quantitative easing. Yeah, and, and, and the, only, the only example I can see that have had nil interest for that long that we, that we know of is kind of Japan, and I hope that's not a model that we follow. No, exactly. Now, I think there's reasons why maybe what's going on in the UK or the US is, is, is different. But I can also see some similarities, which, which makes me nervous that we could be in for a slow haul where there's still a bit of capital floating around. There's still pa- that unevenness could be, the, I think, the defining... I wonder if that's the defining characteristic of maybe the next few years where maybe you don't see a market recovery, but you see little segments or subject segments doing well and, and, and you know, other, other segments doing less well. I think that would be my bet. It's, it's that, 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 that's more likely. I don't think we're going to see a strong upsurge across the board. That, that I definitely don't think will happen. Yeah. Well, well I, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that, that, I think it's the next upcycle, um, whatever, whatever form that takes. But it doesn't sound like a very positive note. Any positive notes that you think we can draw on? <laughs> um, yeah, usually companies do, great companies come out of, bad times like this i mean if you look at we we, we at the time we thought 2009 10 you know was our great depression you know i remember as a kid hearing old guys talk about the great depression you know and um uh-huh. and, and um that kind of felt like that was ours um in many ways i don't think it's going to be as bad as that i do think we will recover but out of that time remember 2008 that was the founding of whatsapp and i think uber and uh-huh. instagram was the next year Square came out of that. A few years later, Revolut came out. Now, that was, you know, the the market had recovered by that time. But, you know, good companies do come. Microsoft, I think, if memory serves me right, the recession of the early 80s, that's when they they got it together. So, you know, we shouldn't lose hope. It's it's tough times. But yeah, there's opportunities if you prepare to invest for the next decade. The bubbles always end, right? And Mm -hmm. if you. Hopefully, if you were conscious, and I think some of our podcasts we've had, I think we were all relatively conscious that we were in bubble territory. If you're conscious of that, hopefully you're conscious of value in general and can see when things are back to, well, hopefully cheap. You know, often fund vintages that start at times like now look very good in a few years' time. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully that's true, and hopefully we'll, um, at some point it will be onwards and upwards, even if it's... Not quite yet. Yeah. Maybe next year. We'll be much more bullish. Yes, <laughs> maybe. Um, what I'd like to do now is move on to our favourite questions. So I'll... We, although we've had you on the podcast before, but I haven't had the chance to ask you these. So uh, we'll throw, throw that at you and get your, uh, your quick thoughts on these. So what was the most recent publicly announced investment you made and why did you make it? I suppose that would be um, an insure tech company we've supported for a number of years called Write and Dem. And we have announced the round, but it, we're just actually another fund manager is coming in to finish the round. It's, uh, I guess you could call it an A round, four to five million range. Um, it's a company that um, that we backed from the beginning. They're changing the face of insurance claims. They've just started hiring some main, you know, big clients like AA, for instance, if you 
<laughs> if you have a car accident with AA, it's it's going through our company writing them. A big company called WNS, one of those companies you've probably never heard of, but which is a massive New York listed um actually Indian firm, but that services a lot of insurance companies. So we 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 think that we're gonna make a good return. No matter what happens to the economy, there's still claims happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and they're changing the face and reducing the cost, making it much more efficient for insurance companies. So, yeah, we're we're happy with that investment. And even no matter how bad this next year or two is going to be, I think they're going to do well. So, in the classic VC triumvirate of market products and management, we know they're all important. But which one do you think is the most important? Generally speaking, I would say, and probably most people say this, generally speaking, I would say management. Mm -hmm. And that's perhaps more important at early stage VC. I think later stage, maybe less so because you can replace them. But early stage management team, the management team, or at least usually two principals, sometimes three, sometimes one. But uh, usually the principals are really what you bet your money on. Uh, But having said that, I can't. Uh, say that the market isn't at times over the overwhelming. I mean, you know, both you know at extreme highs and extreme lows. And obviously, the product is um, you have you know the product. Sometimes you get lucky and be in the right product space. So, for instance, I mentioned Custodex, which is digital custodian. That's a very hot area right now because every bank needs to solve this, and so there, there's all sorts of companies there, and we think we do something a bit better, but. We just, you know, if it does do what we think it can do, a lot of that is the luck of being the right product at the right time. It could be an equally good technology, but just not in that product space. So I don't think either either of those three can just run. But I think for what we do generally, it's the management. It's what we spend most time ascertaining. So tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. We had a recent failure. Well, sort yeah, I, I'd have to say it's a failure because we had to sell the company uh, at a loss. So it didn't go completely bust, but we sold a company called Bevica at a loss, and we sold it to a division of Santander, who have launched it as a product. And uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it was a tough one because the management team were great. Basically, they were helping organizations with cyber, uh-huh. uh, SMEs as opposed to large enterprises. Most large enterprises have their, you know, they have specialist staff and whatever, but a lot of SMEs are terribly exposed. And as our individuals, increasingly the bad actors are showing that they this is their target market, and they helped solve that problem. And I think one day, it, but we ended up finding out that people didn't want to pay for it, even though something is existential for a hospital having ransomware or whatever. They're just people are just not ready in Europe to pay for that yet. I think one day maybe there will be regulatory pressure to do that. Um, the insurance companies loved it because it helped them. It's almost like an Intel inside. So you have a so we had a robust product, a great management team, and it still fails. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you, now we did we got eighty one percent eighty one p back for EIS investors if you took your loss belief and whatever. So it wasn't a total disaster, but it was a failure. And I think one maybe the product was a bit ahead of its time. Or two, it's really hard to know what uh, it, it's impo- It's it's what you. Any, there's a number of reasons why things can go wrong uh-huh. in venture investing, and one of them is just that people won't buy your product. Simple as that. And then one day people will, you know, if Santander is right. Yeah. But they'll buy yeah. it through Santander. Yeah. Market timing is very hard, I think. I think, and, and it's, it seems to be just the hardest call sometimes for a venture capital manager, where it's, you know, it's very easy to be too early. 
And we, sh- we shouldn't underestimate the role of risk. I mean, I think in general in life, you should say that, but uh, the role of luck, should I say, no risk. Um, you you got to get a bit lucky, you know. Now, obviously, you have to have everything in place when that luck comes along. But, you know, if we make a lot of money off this uh, digital asset custodian play I was telling you about, part of that's luck. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think sometimes people don't always attribute that appropriately. But, no. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be surprised if I had a twenty X and said it was all luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you get some people who get twenty X and say, "Oh, it was all skill," which is yeah, equally well, no, and that's a, yeah. You kind of take that with a pinch of salt, I think. So the EIS industry in which we work is great in many ways, but it's far from perfect. If you could change anything about it, what would you change? Well, I think it's been a huge success, and I think that can't be underestimated. When I, one of our companies, an AR company, what we invested in, we were, I was out in Google and GS Labs um, in California, in the Valley, and I was talking to a number of the early stage VCs and angels there. They couldn't believe EIS, and um, uh, I, I and, and VCT. Um, I think if there's one complaint I'd have, it's that education and part of that is i wish the press would take this a bit more seriously i mean you know when we come to tax planning time how often do you see an expose in the financial pages of the ft or the telegraph or something talking about eis investing you know they regard it as hyper hyper risky or something uh-huh. um and in fact you know we have to put this stuff you know the fca about uh, right at the top you can lose this entire investment uh-huh. well can you i mean you get 30 percent back and then loss relief <laughs> uh, now I know if you lie on your forms or you do something underhanded, you can you wouldn't qualify for that. But yeah. your average investment that qualifies, you get sixty percent of your money back on any IS investment. You know, it's it just strikes me as people think, and that's an education thing amongst financial planners. I understand why they do it because it's hard. It's a lot. Of, you know, it's yeah. You, who wants to read a bunch of reports about thirty managers and for a small part of your business? And I've actually had this on when I do educational events like the Intelligent Partnership events. And I see guys coming who see me present and like it. And and I say, you hate doing this business, don't you? But five or six of your top clients want to do it. And I, it would be nice if the education was to a point where people felt comfortable. I know that you've you've done some work on this. So you you should, even if there were no tax advantages, I would make an argument you should be yeah. in these products. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's certainly an argument. Yeah. Yeah. So... The fact that it goes the other way and people go, even with the tax advantages, I still think it's too risky. I think I think that's an education. And I think the EIS Association is doing a great job going. And it's not only on the investor side. I think a lot of entrepreneurs don't know enough about EIS. And certainly I know that Christiana from the EIS Association has said that. Surprised at how many people who are really competent entrepreneurs and didn't know that this was available. So... Um, and I think then if I'm only if I'm going to talk my book completely on this one, <laughs> I wish people do the superiority of EIS funds over VCT a bit more. But that's <laughs> a story for another day. That's OK. <laughs> I, I've got an article in my head which may help you with that. <laughs> so as listeners know, I'm an avid reader, always looking out for new ideas for books. Is there anything out there you like and would recommend? This is one you'd probably hear more from a politician than from a VC fund manager, but I'm going to talk about uh, Robert Caro. Don't know if you've heard about him. I don't know about um, him. He, he wrote a book called The Power Broker about Robert Moses, who basically is the guy responsible for modern day New York. And also he spent, and he's still alive, and he's 
hopefully finishing volume five, monumental study of Lyndon Johnson, the years of Lyndon Johnson. And I'm actually going to cheat a little bit on this and talk about a movie, its current movie that is very fascinating. And, and I'm going to give it a VC twist. And it's called Turn Every Page. I saw it, I saw this on the back, uh, coming back from Austin, Texas. And it's basically mm-hmm. the daughter of probably the top uh, editor in America in the 20th century, um, Robert Gottlieb, the guy published Catch-22, Salman Rushdie, et cetera, et cetera, John le Carre. And it's his relationship with Robert Carroll, so editor and writer. And it reminded me in many ways, um, and I mean, it's a double portrait, this book, and I this movie. And in fact, the movie hadn't finished by the time I got into London. And so I went on a desperate hunt to find this because I've missed the last 20 minutes. I eventually did find the movie. But, um, you know, it, it shows the relationship. It's very humorous between the writer and the editor. And it's often very antagonistic. It's often full of deep respect. It's sometimes like they go to civil war over the use of a semicolon, mm-hmm. having arguments for weeks about this. <laughs> and it's hilarious. It's, it's very, very great. I'd highly recommend this. So it's a it's a movie about people who write books. But what I found from a VC point of view is it really shows, you know, the particular in their relationship. They meet each other. They, you know, the the editor decides this guy's great, but. He needs a lot of work. It reminds me often, but he needs a tech company. This guy's great, but he needs a lot of work. We're going to have a few arguments on the way, and we're going to have a lot of surprises, some good, some bad. And it's a it's a real journey. So that that's a little bit cheating on the on the book side, but it's film about books about books. Okay, well that's the first movie recommendation we've had, so I shall definitely have to. <laughs> I'd highly recommend the Lyndon Johnson series. In fact, when I was in Austin, I was going around looking at a lot of this stuff that I'd read in these. They're great books. Okay, you often hear politicians and whatever talk about Robert Kara. Okay, well I shall check some of that out. Um, I haven't been a big political reader, but always got to open my mind. What do you wish you knew when you started something that you know now? Well, when we started, I think you we started covering EIS at the same time, didn't we? Yeah. Kind of around that time. Yeah. And you remember the market at that time had uh, some really big brands. You know, we know all the names, right? And there was an asset-backed market. Yeah. And EIS had lost its way, basically. And I think, and then that changed for the patient capital review, which I think you have to give thumbs up to the Treasury for making that a success because it could have easily not been a success. And I guess when we first came into the market, we thought it was going to be a lot easier than it was. We thought that, well, because, you know, our background was more, I guess you might call it institutional with working with pension funds or hedge funds or whoever, and people were concerned about transparency of fees and performance, and that's always been our, I don't say it's a terrifically original uh, approach, but it's in the EIS world, it was then. I think it's much different now, you know, there's a lot more new entrants in, there's there's still some, you know, larger players, but um, but I, I think, you know, if we had looked, if we'd known the size of the immediate you know, it took a while to get established. I think we're we're sort of there now. We're 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 comfortable, but the early years were kind of tough. But I think we'd still do it, but we didn't think it was. We th- I think it, what we know now is it's harder than we thought right. at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know maybe that was a little bit function environment. I suspect had you started post patient capital review, you might have found it a little bit easier. Yeah, 
I mean, the number of people we'd go to that would just say, we only do asset packs. We only do asset packs. I remember in Northern Ireland, and we had, you know, they have a, we have a good little following there. And we would go there a few times, and they never did a ticket. And I remember that year, what year was that, 2017? And Royal Assent didn't happen until after the tax year. So if it had happened in December, that Q1 would have been good for us. And I remember them all saying, we really like your offering, but, you know, asset backed, it's an easy choice. And I said, well, what are you going to do after March? You know, or April or whenever Royal Ascent comes, it's over. And they were all like, oh, I don't know. And at, at, luckily, it's turned in that they, a lot of those guys have since come in and invested in us. But uh, yeah, I think I think you're right. If we'd started a bit later, we would. Those early years were tough because it was just so easy to go just for the tax breaks. We we, we didn't have to review many of those products, but I had strong misgivings about the way the market was at the time. And I'm, I'm <laughs> and, I, and I agree with you that. The Treasury really got the outcome. I mean, the process, I think, of getting the patient capital uh -huh. review was, and the risk of capital condition was, was felt a little bit painful, but the outcome was actually a very good one, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and if you look at, you know, there's not many parts of the economy, you know, you read real negative stuff about our productivity and et cetera. But one thing that's really, I mean, the, when, when I first worked in the city, UBS, Phillips & Drews was then known, there was no venture capital industry in this country or very small, and it wasn't certainly really tech, very techy. Um, if it was a venture capital, it might've founded guys to start seats, Pete's Express or something like that. But um, it was nothing compared to the States. And now it's a real world beater, you know, right across the, you know, and I, and I think EIS and VCT is certainly something to say in, the, in the, that respect and providing pipeline for, you know, future. We have a lot of good companies in this country. Yeah. Yeah, and long may that continue. So if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at Simvan, where should they go? Uh, I guess the first protocol would be Simvan's website, simvancapital.com. And there, there's some contact details and they can contact uh, one of the representatives in the firm. And they can also check it out on LinkedIn. I try to be regular in putting posting up. I'm not, I don't think I'm as regular as you are, but <laughs> uh, I give it a, my best shot. Yeah, well, we shall post links to both of those in the show notes. Um, thank you very much for coming on today um, and bearing with the, the tech issues. Um, yes. <laughs> and I'm glad we oh, got that hopefully, in. Hopefully listeners won't hear any of that. Uh, they, they'll be completely unaware how long it took us to put this together. We'll let them know just in case. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Brad. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Keelan. I think a long-term perspective is vital when you're in a downturn. As usual, you can get full show notes with links at harmonandco.com forward slash podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review with lots of stars on your favourite podcast app. You can also subscribe directly on all good podcast services and players or through the link in the show notes. We can be contacted at acquirers at harmonandco.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks' time.